Previously, on Survive by One, Tom Odell recounted his arrest, confession, and underwent psychological examinations. Survived by One, The Life and Mind of a Family Mass Murderer by Robert E. Hanlon with Thomas V. Odell. Episode 13, On Trial for Life. The next phase of Tom Odell's life would unfold in a series of courtrooms. Following a coroner's inquest, the pre-trial hearings took place in the Jefferson County Courthouse in Mount Vernon, the county seat, from December 1985 through February 1986. The trial, however, was moved to Richland County in response to a change of venue motion by the defense, who held that a fair trial in Jefferson County would not be possible due to the publicity the crime and the defendant had received. On November 26, 1985, a little over two weeks following the murders, the deaths of the five Odell family members were ruled homicides at a coroner's inquest. Dr. Richard Gerritsen, Jefferson County Coroner, testified on the state's behalf. Gerritsen distributed photos of the victims to the jurors and gave his account of the crime scene, victim by victim and wound by wound. When Assistant State's Attorney Kathleen Alling asked him to characterize the wounds and relate them to the victims' deaths, Gerritsen testified, quote, I would say they would be quite painful, and in addition to that, it's a suffocation death, even though we call it immediate on the coroner's death certificate. It takes minutes for a person to die. That would be a very agonizing death, end quote. Pathologist James R. Miller, M.D., who had conducted the autopsies on all five of the victims, also testified for the state, concluding that a, quote, considerable amount of force would be required to inflict these wounds. The six-member coroner's jury reached a verdict after approximately 20 minutes of deliberation. I was assigned two attorneys, one I hardly ever saw, and one I saw all the time. The one I saw frequently would tell me that I would walk and not to worry about a thing. I was young. The legal system was something I'd left to the lawyers, as I had done once before. He told me this and that was going to happen, so I believed him. There was never a doubt that I would walk after we had the trial. He took it upon himself to take care of issues regarding the estate. I didn't know what was going on, and I didn't know he was doing that until the state brought it up in a motion at a hearing one day. But again, I just left it alone, because he was the lawyer. He told me not to worry, and he said that I would walk out of the courthouse right after the trial. So I never worried one bit. I was in a cell block with a good friend of mine who was there 90% of the time I was there. So my pretrial time went really smooth and fast. There were no problems for me, and I saw my attorney almost every night. So there were no worries on my part. People wrote me letters, especially girls and women wanting to be my friend and congratulating me on doing something they had only thought about doing because they were mistreated and abused also. There was also some kind of fan club for me. Kids were threatening their parents to do to them what I had done to mine if they didn't leave them alone. It was crazy. I liked the attention I was getting and I even reconnected with an old friend I had a crush on for years. She wrote to me, so I wrote back, and we found each other in a new light. And I had the Christians beating down my door and everything else. It was crazy. I had to see several doctors during that time, 
but I didn't really know what to say to them. With some of them, I was very careful because I didn't want to sound crazy. With others, I just answered questions the way I was told to answer them. I still had my pride to think of, and I did not want to be crazy. However, I know now that it might have saved me, but I was not going to give in. I guess there was a part of me that was finally getting attention, and I was enjoying the recognition. Obviously, that was not the right way to go about it, but for once in my life I could be me without someone lurking to tear me down or shame me in front of other people. It was as if I had wings that were finally out and being used. I finally felt that I was becoming who I was supposed to be. It's bad for me to say it now, but that's how I felt inside at that time. During the January 31, 1986 pretrial hearing for the defense motion to suppress Tom's confession due to his drug-induced altered mental state when he was arrested, the court would get an early but lasting impression of the character of Tom Odell. The impression of an immature and defiant boy who showed little remorse for his actions would influence the court, the prosecutors, and the press throughout the legal proceedings to follow. The pretrial hearing was the only time Tom testified on his own behalf. The questions focused on his drug use on the night of the crimes. He talked about the hallucinogenic effects he was experiencing from the angel dust, or PCP, he smoked just before he was arrested. The prosecution was eager to confirm that Tom was lucid enough to understand what he had done, and that he understood his rights when they were read to him. In the end, Tom managed to portray himself as a regular, knowledgeable drug user who had the presence of mind to stand trial for the crimes for which he was accused. And do you feel that everything that you stated there was the truth? I wouldn't go so far as to say everything I said was the truth. Do you know? Well, from today, I can tell you that not all of it's the truth. Do you know why you would have told them something that wasn't the truth on that day? Mixed up. Confused. Did you read the statement when they gave it to you? Yes. Did you sign the statement? Yes. Did you sign it because it was a true and accurate statement? Not really. Why did you sign it? Just to get it over with. Following Tom's testimony and arguments of counsel, Judge Donald E. Garrison promptly denied the defense motion to suppress Tom's statement of confession. During the pretrial hearings, which ultimately resulted in the trial's relocation to Richland County, the reports of the forensic examiners who had evaluated Tom following the murders were submitted into evidence. The report of forensic psychiatrist Lawrence L. Jekyll, M.D., documented the following. In reviewing the historical data of great importance are the considerable conflicts in the family prior to this incident. DCFS previously investigated the parents' treatment of a younger brother, Sean. He was chained to his bed for one to two years because he would steal food at night. At one point, Sean was placed in DCFS custody. DCFS notes reflect a chaotic family structure with poor parenting skills. Mrs. Odell had a propensity for rigid and sadistic treatment of the boy, and Mr. Odell protected his wife. However, the family pursued the recommended treatment by DCFS and cooperated in the investigation. 
Thomas said he too was chained to this bed as a young boy for two or three years because he would break into people's houses at night. He said his mother told him he had newborn fever and a skull fracture when he was little. Thomas denied his father ever beat him or any of the other children. The father was just a bystander while mother beat the children. Thomas said he had thought about hurting his family before. He decided he would kill his family the night prior to the alleged crime when father and mother told him he had to leave the home. Thomas told me he still could not believe he had hurt his family. He told me, I don't think I have a conscience. I don't feel guilty about what I've done. He said one reason he killed the entire family was because he did not want them hurt by mother's death. To quote Thomas further, my mother was the one I really wanted. She mentally abused me. He described past abuse such as being beaten by my mother with a belt all over my body, and when I was 10, she smashed my thumb with a hammer. My mother said I was no good and wouldn't be anything. My mother always hurt me, hurt my little brother, and father never stopped her. Thomas was a severe, chronic, chaotic personality style, which has object and self-destructive features. He grew up with little structure and love. He suffers from a pervasive sense of being out of control. The trigger for the alleged crime was his ejection from the family home. Thomas saw this ejection as the final abandonment by his family and the ultimate abuse. The report of forensic psychiatrist and defense expert Henry G. Conroe provided a lengthy, detailed description of the events leading up to and surrounding the day of the crime, the long-standing abuse by Tom's mother, and Tom's chronic drug abuse. While Dr. Conroe agreed with most of Dr. Jekyll's findings and opinions, he disagreed with the latter's conclusion regarding DCFS interventions. He described chronic feelings of hopelessness and depression. He had suicidal thoughts of shooting himself in the head. He spoke of being remorseful, but also being relieved because, and I quote, I will never hear them bitching, putting me down, end quote. At this point, he sees no future for himself, but he denied current suicidal ideation. Dr. Jekyll's statement that, quote, the family pursued the recommended treatment by DCFS and cooperated in the investigation, end quote, was erroneous. For example, a letter from 71381 to DCFS describes the unwillingness of the family to accept therapeutic services. In addition, Mr. Odell balked at paying $170 per month for Sean's support in 1983, despite an income of $30,000 per year. Sean's situation was a symptom of a malignant family system. Tom's behavior was another symptom of this malignancy. He was also the focus of physical and emotional abuse. Tom's indifference toward the lives of his family members was similar to his mother's attitude. His upbringing led to his having a serious mental disease, a borderline personality disorder with antisocial features. On April 9th, 1986, one month before Tom's trial was scheduled to begin, Michael E. Althoff, Ph.D., a defense expert, conducted another psychological evaluation of Tom. Althoff agreed with Dr. Conroe's double diagnoses. In his conclusions, Althoff summarizes the case and Tom's mental state on the day of the crimes.
This ultimate rejection and potential separation from his family, in combination with the effects of the marijuana and alcohol, along with intense underlying anger and feelings of estrangements, allowed these acts to be initiated. The temporal disintegration and depersonalization effects created a feeling of self-estrangement and unreality that lessened concern for future consequences and his ambivalence towards loss of control. This, in turn, resulted in the initiation of the first homicide. The unleashing of this act of vengeance toward the figure of paramount importance in his family built the foundation for the initiation of the remaining homicides. Having killed his father, who was ostensibly a protector of the family, allowed him to assume the role of avenger and take the power which his father never consistently exercised. In some sense, at this point, he likely identified with his father. The remaining homicides can most usefully be understood as the acting out of this caretaking role. At one level, Tom finally solved the familial conflict and difficulties through the remaining homicides. Among the psychological tests Altoff administered were some projective drawings. The psychologist's interpretation of Tom's drawings of his dead family members includes the following. His associations in response to a request to draw a picture of his family prior to their death suggest significant familial alienation and estrangement. When asked to initiate the task, he asked, Do you want me included too? When given the choice of whether to include himself or not, he excluded himself. The drawing suggests perceptions of maternal figures as being critical and disappointing. The figure of the father was drawn first, indicating that this figure is likely most impressive or important to Tom. The figure of his brother, Sean, was drawn last, suggesting that Sean is likely viewed as least important in Tom's life. The absence of a drawing of himself suggests significant feelings of being inconsequential, powerless, and emotionally separate from the family unit. 